You are listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's July 21st. It's been one month this weekend since Yevgeny Prigozhin, leader of the Wagner Mercenary Group, led a failed rebellion in Russia. And we're still seeing dysfunction in Moscow. According to Rand's Dara Masico, writing in the New York Times this week, the problems endemic to Russia's campaign in Ukraine, from inept military leadership to logistical issues, are likely to get worse. Quote, Mr. Putin's cocoon of loyal interlocutors filters out these problems, she says, and instead offers a substitute view to both the president and a disengaged public. One telling sign of where things stand for Russia today is the disappearance of one of its most experienced generals, Sergei Serovikin. Serovikin was filmed in a nondescript room during the Wagner uprising, requesting that the group stand down. He has not been seen since. Rumors are swirling of Serovikin's detention as punishment for his long-standing ties to Yevgeny Prigozhin and his possible knowledge of the rebellion. The delay in information regarding his whereabouts suggests that the Kremlin is still deciding how to proceed. In this atmosphere of suspicion and uncertainty, one where prominent generals disappear and Putin is quick to blame traitors, self-censorship among Russia's top military leaders is likely to become more prevalent, says Masico. This could undermine the Kremlin's grasp on the true state of play during a crucial state of the war. Overall, there's much uncertainty about what might happen next. For example, will Wagner troops fully withdraw from Ukraine? If they do, then Russia's regular military units will see higher casualties at a time when they can ill afford more losses. Some estimates suggest that the Russian army has already lost half of its combat effectiveness. This could create an opening for the Ukrainian counteroffensive, although that effort faces its own set of challenges, including the dangerous work of cutting through dense Russian minefields. One thing is clear, Masico says, the cumulative pressure created by the Kremlin's poor choices is mounting. For now, Russia's front lines in Ukraine are holding, but this pressure, it could ultimately lead those front lines to crack. Recently, India has sealed an arms deal with Vietnam, sided with the Philippines on sovereignty disputes in the South China Sea, and bolstered defense cooperation with Indonesia. This flurry of regional diplomacy, as Rand's Derek Grossman calls it, suggests that India is becoming a strategic actor in Southeast Asia. Governments in the region have long made it their mantra not to choose geopolitical sides. So what explains this shift? China. Beijing's aggressive posture in and around the South China Sea is driving India and its regional partners together. This, of course, could be good news for the U.S., raising the, quote, tantalizing possibility that India will increasingly complement America's Indo-Pacific strategy to counter China. Grossman is careful to point out that not all Indian engagements in the region are necessarily positive for the U.S., But, he says, there is more that Washington could do to encourage New Delhi to take actions that serve U.S. interests. 
For example, additional joint patrols in the South China Sea among India, the U.S., and other nations could bolster deterrence. And more Indian infrastructure and development projects, as well as trade deals, could help lessen Beijing's economic dominance of Southeast Asia. Notably, though, Grossman says that even if New Delhi's policy of outreach to Southeast Asia remains at current levels, it's still a big win for Washington. For some mass shooters, fame is partially, if not entirely, their motivation. As seen in the aftermath of the shootings in Buffalo, New York, and El Paso, Texas, attackers have left behind manifestos or made public statements on social media that glorify their violence and encourage others to carry out more attacks. Such actions are common tactics that attackers use to maximize attention and influence. Unfortunately, evidence suggests that these tactics do contribute to higher levels of future violence. One well-publicized attack can motivate multiple lone copycat killers. Worse still, prospective shooters may learn how to carry out bloodier, higher-profile attacks from their predecessors. According to RAND researchers, there are ways to break this cycle of bloodshed. The first step is to deny attackers the attention they seek. Studies have shown that news coverage in the aftermath of mass attacks can magnify the imitation effect and increase the likelihood of another incident. Journalists, law enforcement, and policymakers can help minimize this by avoiding publicly naming or publishing images of mass shooters, minimizing discussion of an attacker's tactics and weapons, and focusing more attention on the victims of an attack. Second, technology companies can play a role in cutting off attackers' access to receptive audiences and in countering their messaging. Social media companies have tried to remove or moderate content about mass shooters, but this is difficult and must be balanced with upholding rights to free speech. Further, censorship isn't always successful and has its own risks. As an alternative to content moderation, companies could label, explain, and expose hateful extremist messages that read like everyday identity politics. This can educate audiences about what this content attempts to do, which is spread fear and conspiracies and further polarize society. Third, more can be done to demonstrate the ultimate failure of mass shooters to achieve far-right objectives. While some may succeed in killing large numbers of people and even inspire copycats, many more have been arrested or killed for trying and none of these shooters have achieved their stated objectives of starting a race war or inspiring a revolution. Temperate, fact-based counter-messaging may remind would-be attackers that there's no real fame in bloodshed. The security clearance process can be confusing and opaque, leading many people to seek clarity online. But what information is available on websites and on public forums? And how might this information shape public perceptions and misperceptions about the security clearance process? To answer these questions, RAND researchers examined official documents and web pages and unofficial online sources covering the security clearance process. Here's a brief summary of what they found. Unsurprisingly, government documentation and websites offer a detailed authoritative source for the clearance process. However, the information is lengthy 
and difficult to find and digest for many security clearance applicants. When assessing non-government sources, including university job sites, defense contractor websites, law firm sites, and news sites, our researchers found that most of these sources provide true or somewhat true information. However, they may oversimplify the process, which can lead to misperceptions by applicants. Our researchers also looked at online communities dedicated to discussing the security clearance process on Reddit, Federal Soup, and clearancejobsblog.com. Posts on these sites generally focused on individual experiences and relied on anecdotal evidence. There are several things that the federal government can do to improve information provided about the security clearance process, including developing and releasing more accessible, easy-to-understand content that explains the nuances of the process and offers explanations about risk factors. But perhaps you're still wondering why clarity around this process is really all that important. To start, misperceptions about what could lead to a clearance denial or revocation may deter people from trying to apply for a security clearance altogether. Misperceptions about the process could also lead some applicants to omit details about their lives for fear of damaging their chances of getting a security clearance. Under certain conditions, these omissions could harm applicants more than merely being honest from the beginning. That's it for today's episode. You can learn more about the topics we discussed in the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We're off next week, but we'll be back in your feeds on August 4th. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis.